This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime. In this podcast, I really offer reflections. I host conversations with friends and practitioners and teachers. And together, we're uh, exploring a full-spectrum spirituality, which loosely includes all states and stages of, of our being, but also includes the highs, the lows, and plateaus of exploring those states and stages of our being. And um, in this talk, first thing I should say is um, here in Maine, uh, we're in really the beginning of the spring season, but pollen is out. Pollen is uh, afloat in the air, and it's definitely affecting my upper resp respiratory system. And I, you'll hear it in my voice in the talk. I feel very congested, sound very congested, I should say. My thinking is even a bit congested. Um, but uh, other than that, I'm fine. Uh, but the the the... the the theme that I want to try to open up in this in this particular Dharma talk is continued exploration of a theme that I received uh, from my Dharma mentor, therapist, and teacher, Jack Angler, who passed away last month. But Jack, as a Western-trained psychologist and a deeply practiced Dharma practitioner, um, identified a dynamic on the path of practice uh, that he see, saw as essential, as sort of a, a core element or a core theme that is explored over and over and over again at different levels of iteration. But it's the theme of mourning. And his argument is that with any significant insight, with any transformative kind of insight, we can first confront one of our illusions. We, we, can, we confront, confront a distortion of perception or a view or opinion or a self-image that we hold, we confront that illusion and then go through a process of releasing that illusion over time as the insight uh, starts to mature within us. And that process is something that Jack uh, rightly named as a grieving process. So uh, this talk, I'm exploring the kind of the, the mourning, I mean that literally, the mourning and the joy of insight. Okay, I guess I, I probably have to come to the joy part more in, in, in the part two of this talk. But for now, I'm really trying to include the, in the conversation of waking up, of walking the path, of practicing day in, day out with everyday occurrences. Um, mourning is a huge part of it. That's why I had the, the podcast conversation I released last week with Donna Brooks, who's really a somatic expert on grieving and somatic practice and yoga practice in general. Um, but it's, it's also why I'm going to continue on with these reflections from Jack Engler, sort of in, um, in recognition, in memoriam of his life and his legacy. But because I think he's, he touches on such important themes that tend to get um, squeezed out of contemporary conversations around practice, um, at least in the way that I've been exposed to teachings. So uh, I hope you enjoy today's talk. Uh, as always, if you would like to join the conversation with me and Terry, if you'd like support in your own practice, uh, with, and, and if your practice involves any of the three or all of the three of sitting meditation, um, yin yoga, qigong, uh, if you're interested in these things, if you're interested in the evolution of yin yoga through our teaching or the way we're, we're uh, imagining the evolution of the practice, um, and if you're a teacher, if you're looking for inspiration in your teaching, um, we invite you to join our practice community, community called the Riverbird Sangha. 
Um, we, Terry and I, I offer four classes a week, 7 a.m. Uh, Maine Eastern Standard Time. Um, the main part was a joke there. But it's Eastern Standard Time at, at 7 a.m. Monday through Thursday. And uh, if you're not able to, to attend the live sessions, all of our classes, our tutorials, core workshops are included in our library. They're, they're archived in our library. So many people in the Sangha that practice with us, that join our membership, do so and primarily uh, come in contact through, the, through the, the teachings and the practices through the recordings in the library. So whether you're able to attend live, whether you're able to attend through the library, we look forward to practicing with you. We really enjoy uh, facilitating a practice conversation that integrates both Qigong, sitting meditation, yoga, with a really an integrally informed approach to spirituality. So if that's of interest, we look forward to practicing with you. There's a link for you in the show notes. And um, even if you don't want to practice with us, join the newsletter because um, in the, the latest evolution of the newsletter that I'm doing called Practicing Yin, we're releasing a kind of teaching uh, a teaching reflection on Thursdays and a review or a preview of our weeks of our practices to come for the for the upcoming week on Sundays. So on Thursdays and Sundays we'll be publishing uh, this practicing Yin newsletter, and in that each week we'll be including a practice etude, which is a free fifteen minute or less practice on one of those themes: sitting meditation, qigong, or Yin yoga. Um, and we're just, there's just a lot of other sort of yin-related, yin-yoga-related information and news that we'll be sharing. So that you can uh, have in your inbox, inbox twice a week uh, just by subscribing to Practicing Yin on our website, joshsummers.net. Okay, that's a lot from me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy today's Dharma talk, and we look forward to practicing with you. Without further ado, here's today's talk, The Morning Joy of Insight. Last week, in last week's talk, I, at some point, mentioned or referenced a quotation that's attributed to the Buddha. And this is a quotation that teachers of mine have, I think I've, I've almost heard it on every single retreat I've done. Um, it is just a quotation that the teachers will say, summarizes the entirety of the path. So like if there's just one thing you get, <laughs> there's one thing you can get your head around, get your heart around, this would be it. And it's a pretty direct statement. Uh, the Buddha says something to the extent that nothing whatsoever, that whatsoever adds a little elbow grease to it. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. I mean, nothing is, no experience, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no thought is to be clung to as that's mine. And, um, and that sort of had me reflecting a little bit around um, the theme of grasping last week and, and particularly how one way of that grasping can manifest in practice is that we grasp on 
teachings or we grasp on to ideas about practice. Particularly, we could even ironically end up grasping to the idea of non-grasping. Like I have to be, I have to let go. I have to not grasp. I have to non-grasp. Um, and as I, <clears throat> over the week, as I personally was reflecting on some of the things that we were discussing last week, the phrase that um, I heard first and really most most clearly from my, the late teacher that I worked with, Jack Engler, um, this phrase kept coming back to me. Um, and the phrase that he, he used was that this spiritual path, the, the path of the Dharma, it, the entirety of the path is a path of mourning, of grieving. And as I shared in the newsletter uh, from last week, or was, was I can't remember if it was yesterday's or Thursday's, but in one of the newsletters, you know, I said when I when Jack said that to me, I forget what I was. I think I was at, at the time uh, just sort of lightly complaining that I was feeling bored in my life. You know, things had settled down. There was no big drama in my life, and I had a job and a relationship and routines and. Everything was just settling into a, a, a comfortable rhythm, and yet I was feeling bored. And um, when I complained about feeling bored, he just sort of said, the, the entirety of the path is a path of grieving. What are you grieving? What aspect of yourself are you grieving? And it, when he said it, it was one of those statements that rang through my being with, with the conviction of truth. Like it was like a, a, a church bell that, that I had been standing next to that suddenly was rung and it was shimmering with sound. Like, okay, this is true. I, I know part of me knows this to be true, but a big part of me doesn't want to hear this. A big part of me didn't sign up for spiritual practice to be on one continuous path of mourning. I came for you know, contentment, peace, soft, light, and um, love and compassion and unity and oneness and <laughs> all those sorts of things. I didn't come to mourn. But um, as, I, as I mentioned, the, in the years, in the intervening years since I first heard that, <clears throat> um, the depth and the wisdom of Jack's statement that the entirety of the path is a path of mourning has really, um, you know, come to impress me as a very succinct and important teaching. Um, and I remember after he said it, I, I, I sort of looked online at the time. I mean, is there anything that he's written that he had written about that like, with that statement in it? And I was never able to find anything in a book or an article that he had written that that summarized it all with that pithy statement that the entirety of the path is a path of mourning. But I did find an article. Um, <clears throat> I think some of you have maybe seen passages of this article. Uh, that I, I used the article in one of my meditation modules. But I did find an article about... Um, Practices Awakening, or the Practice of Awakening that Jack had written for the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. 
So the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, if you don't know it, is a smaller retreat center next door, literally literally next door to the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, sort of a sister center to the Insight Meditation Society. And it's a smaller scale operation in that um, they don't take 100 people for retreat. Usually there's 20 or 30 people on retreat at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. And the idea is to combine intensive practice at the study center with study, as the name implies. So with some sort of scholastic thematic study. And in, in an article for that uh, organization, um, Jack really, in a, in a handful of paragraphs, like maybe four or five paragraphs, really spelled out in a much more uh, comprehensive way what he meant by the statement, the whole path is a path of mourning. And I started to transcribe a couple of the paragraphs thinking I'd just read a little bit of it. And as I kept going, I was like, this is, this is too good not to share in, in more or less complete form. So I'm not gonna, it's not the entire essay, it's not the entire article. And I, we can, I'll send out um, a link in, the, in our newsletter with this article and you can look up yourself. But I, I just want to invite you to, as I read through this, um, and I'll try to be clear when I'm adding my own commentary, um, but as I read through this, and just listen to it as though you were meditating. You know, open, listen to it with some receptivity, some interest. Um, and and I'll I'll say a few words after I share this, but just I want I want to invite this 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 teaching into our into our conversation and in, into our practice because I think um, the experience of grief, the experience of mourning, really is as I say, you know, as Jack says, at, at the heart of the path, um, and it also sounds like it's at the heart of many people's experience now, you know, as I hear from folks what's happening, what's alive for you in your practice, what's alive for me in my practice, that um, many of us are facing small and not so small losses. And um, it is very understandable that we might come to practice hoping that practice will be some form of an analgesic you know, an, a, a way of reducing pain, taking pain away. And um, practice, as I understand it, is, is exactly the opposite. It won't take pain away. It will bring greater clarity, greater resolution to pain. So this is Jack now, <clears throat> Jack Engler. As long as we cling, we don't awaken. So how do we let go of clinging? How do we let go of anything that we cherish and believe is essential to our happiness? That's really the crucial issue in practice, as it is in therapy and as it is in life. We call our practice insight meditation. Because in it, we see the truth of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. But 
insight alone is not transformative. Not in therapy, not in meditation, not in any process of transformation. How many times, he asks, how many times have you understood quite clearly what you should do, seen very clearly into some old pattern of behavior and why it doesn't work, and yet found yourself still repeating it? Hand in the air. Coming to see that someone or something needs to be surrendered and surrendering it are two different processes. It's the hard work, it's the hard working through of insight that makes the difference. And at its core, this always involves coming to terms with some loss. Because genuine insight always challenges us to give up something we're clinging to. A long-held belief, a mistaken self-image, a misplaced hope a habit or familiar way of doing things, the assumption that someone we love will always be there. True insight means seeing things as they really are, not as we want them to be. And coming to this acceptance is the work of mourning. Mourning, letting go of the way we want things to be is much harder than coming to understand that we must let go. We seldom, if ever, just accept anything, especially anything that threatens our safety and security, what we feel we need to survive. Most of the time, when reality doesn't accord with our wish or the way we think things should be, we only come to accept it gradually, haltingly, sometimes with despair, always with resistance. Without grieving what we are being forced to give up, we don't let go. Grief work is precisely about coming to acceptance of a new state of affairs in which something we have cherished is absent. Through the work of mourning, insight becomes truth. Maladaptive clinging and desperate holding on are surrendered, and we start to live again. And he says, just the next passage, this is never more true than in Dharma practice, since what we confront and have to surrender is our clinging to self. It's a process. We surrender a clinging to self, a belief about who we are and how we are that we have cherished for so long and believed essential to our happiness. And I just wanted to, the reason I wanted to read a little bit of this article um, is really because of this, this next section um, that came out of his field work. He says, the two people I know, the two people I know who experienced awakening very shortly after beginning formal practice, one in six days 
and one in six weeks were both women who had suffered great losses in their lives not long before and who were themselves close to death. One had lost her husband and two of her three children and had been given only weeks to live by her doctors. This is Deepa Ma. The other had been had made three suicide attempts. It was not because of their samadhi was good, though it was. Both had already experienced profound loss, profound impermanence, profound suffering, profound selflessness. Both were already grieving deeply. Neither was holding on to much anymore. Mourning had prepared them, much as the shock of his father's death and subsequent poverty prepared the sixth Zen patriarch's mind to awaken without formal practice on hearing the Diamond Sutra. Awakening happens when self-grasping stops. I'll pause Jack's reflections there. Awakening happens when self-grasping stops and letting go of self-grasping really and working through the insight of the pain of self-grasping as he's saying is a process of mourning giving up something cherished giving up something dear every time I reflect on on this theme, I think of some of the stuff I've, I've learned from neuroscience that talks about how our brains um, kind of are, are, are wired to have an asymmetric response to things. Meaning, you probably heard the phrase that the brains, our brains have a negativity bias, that we respond more strongly to negative stimuli than we do to positive stimuli or we focus more on positive uh, sorry we focus more on negative things in the environment than we do on positive things there's evolutionary reasons for that but one of these asymmetries is around experience that um, when we lose something that we have we experience that emotional loss twice as much as we do a comparable gain of the same thing. So the simple example is if you if you find $20 on the ground, it feels like you just found $20. But if you lose $20 in your pocket, it feels like you lost 40 bucks. You feel like you feel the pain, the sting twice as heavy. So loss, they call this the fear of losing because of the pain that comes with it. The psychologists refer to this as loss aversion, aversion to loss. And for many, many years now, I've really wondered about the experience of loss aversion as a Dharma theme, meaning if the path of practice is one of letting go, you know, of of releasing grasping, then when we let go, we will feel 
the pain, the fear, the resistance that comes from loss aversion, from just the way our neural psyche is, is wired. And when I put that, that, that kind of that, that one factoid of information in context with what Jack was reflecting on, it starts to make more sense to me, at least, that the whole path really is going to be a path of coming to terms with the inevitability of loss. And, you know, it, I think I'm most, in probably most people's hearts and minds, when, I, when someone like me speaks about loss or mourning, uh, I imagine that a lot of us think in terms of like a, a, a cherished loss of a loss of a cherished person, a cherished pet, um, a relationship, or maybe in a condition in your life. Um, so, you know, specifically losing Jack himself last month has brought me to um, an experience of grief, losing Ozzy, um, fear of losing my niece. Um, these are, these are, I think, uh, more conventional ways of thinking about loss and grief. But the the comment that Jack made to me once that when when he said the entire path is a path of of mourning, the follow up to that, which I included in the newsletter, but the follow up comment that really got the the hairs in the back of my neck standing on end, and I think really spoke to a a, a profound clarity in how he could articulate his own insight. But he said, you know, we will grieve and mourn the things we've done. And, I, and anyone that's gone on retreat knows that. If you've, if you've spent significant time in silence with yourself, the, um, the review process, or you could call it even the judgment day process of your life comes back to you. You don't have to be Christian to, to go through this. You know, you, when you sit with yourself long enough, you review your life or a life review takes place and things that you've forgotten you've done, usually things that you're ashamed for having done, regretful for having, these come back and there's a profound sense of grief for the unskillfulness, the unwisdom in those, in your actions. So that's one way grief manifests, man, you know, the things we've done ourselves that have caused harm. But then the flip side of that coin is also true is that we, um, confront and face the things that have happened to us, the injustices that we've received, the unfairness the, and, and the, the trauma. And there's grief in that. And I was kind of, when Jack was talking about those two forms of mourn, mourning and grief, I was nodding along. And then he said something that sort of made my, my eye go up. He said, and then in the deeper stages of insight, in the deeper stages of insight, we start to mourn the loss of a self was never there in the first place. And that's a very odd feeling. You have the insight 
that there is no permanent, separate, stable, core self anywhere. You can have the insight. The insight can flash into that, uh, flash up. But the living into, the working through of that insight into an integrated life confronts us with mourning the loss of something that was never there. It's like it's like being finding your whole life was spent acting in a movie um, that you know the, the the set for the movie was had ended the the whole the whole thing was over and now you're like you're still living like you're a character in that movie but the whole thing is done. And that gets uncomfortable. And I, I uh, just because this came up in a, in a private conversation, I want to mention this. Because when I share from Jack, you know, he, he was adamant about speaking about practice within the context of awakening. You know, that was front and center in, in terms of what he emphasized. And in terms of reflecting on awakening, one will often hear something like I said, we mourn the, the loss of a self that was never there in the first place. And it's easy to hear that and think, if the self is lost and it was never there in the first place, that means there's no self, right? Buddhism seems to say that, that there's no self. That's what makes Buddhism Buddhism. It says that there's no self. And... Uh, as a non-Buddhist Dharma practitioner, that's me. Like I don't identify as a Buddhist, but I identify as a practitioner of the Dharma. Whenever I hear someone say, well, the Buddha said there's no self, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard for me. <laughs> because I'm th And the reason it's like fingernails on a chalkboard is because that's not what I understand the Buddha having said. And it's a subtle point here. It's a, and I want to try to, I want to hit on this subtle note again and again, so that hopefully our, in our conversation, we can avoid some of the confusion that comes around the statement that the self was never there in the first place. When the Buddha spoke about self, what a self is, what a self is not, he primarily refused to define these things. He refused to define what a self was. He said he didn't confirm or deny a self. Wait, I thought he said there's no self. No, he didn't confirm or deny any notion of a self. All he weighed in on, this is, a, this is an important distinction, but all he weighed in on was saying what we take to be self is not self. Meaning what we take to be a feature, what we take to be an element of a permanent unchanging self is not that. So if you contemplate your experience of yourself at any given moment, and you interpret your experience of yourself through uh, contemplative language, 
we can say, okay, right now we're sitting and there's a sensation. And reflexively, we often operate and walk around like, well, that sensation is part of me. That's mine. It's my knee sensation. I put my foot there, my foot. We talk about it just casually, reflexively all the time. My sensation. What is it? Well, look at your sensation. Is anything in your sensation compatible with the idea of a fixed, unchanging, permanent self? Is there anything compatible about a sensation with your notion of a self? If, it's, if your notion of self is that of a fixed, enduring, permanent thing. And so this, this is the work of kindergarten. Literally. Reminding it to look at a sensation. See, oh, the sensation is changing. We can't say the sensation, the changing sensation equals permanency. So there's nothing in a sensation, there's nothing in a field of physicality that is compatible with the notion of a permanent, unchanging self. And the Buddha just goes through that with everything else, with sensation, from sensations to feelings to thoughts, that in the field of experience, with all the elements of experience that we can come in contact with, nothing in that field of experience is compatible with the notion of a fixed permanent entity or an enduring self. And it's one thing to hear that. You know, we can all hear that. And if you're, you've studied a little bit of college philosophy or logic, or you can hear that and you can have an intellectual agreement and insight. Oh, yeah, that, that that's, that's, sounds right. That sounds true. But that's just, that's like dry, that's insight without transformation. And so the, the transformation that Jack is referring to in that passage I shared requires a working out at every level of our, our programming to come into alignment with the perception of the insight. And that's a, not an easy process. And all you have to do is meditate for less than 30 seconds and see your mind get hooked into the belief that that's me, whether it's a thought, a sensation, or, you know, it only takes, it takes less than 30 seconds to see this, what the, the, the habit energy that we're up against. But the reason why I'm, I'm, I guess I want to close, the reason I'm, I'm saying that this, this conceptualization of what exactly the Buddha meant when he talked about selflessness, he, is, he, is refu- he refused, he philosophically, spiritually refused to positively define what the self was gave no answer on that. The reason being is that he felt any positive answer would lead to greater confusion, would delay or obstruct the direct Gnostic, meaning experiential knowledge 
to be had. So he only defined the self by what it was not. It's not a sensation. It's not a sound. It's not a thought. Not a feeling. But I think just that that much alone is something to, to reflect on and practice. I know it's early in Monday morning. <laughs> Deep into morning and what the self is, what's the nature of the self. So if I can translate all this into a um, you know, some just simple takeaways for practice. And, and I'm really trying to describe what my practice has been a little bit like lately. But one thing in working with grasping, working with like the grasping of views, the grasping of a sense of self, the narrative of view, you know, opinions, et cetera, is, um, is truly just to, to, to have a feeling, an embodied experience of what your hands are like when they aren't grasping. So when we sit today, play around with how you position your palms. And I'm not going to say too much about it, but I really want you to ask yourself, what would, it, what would my hands feel like if they weren't grasping for something? And just to position your hands in that way. So it's, a, it's sort of a self-styled mudra for your hands of non-grasping. They might be face down, they may be face up, they might be, they might be holding each other. You can do whatever you want with your hands, but it, like, for you, cl click into something about your, your palm position that feels aligned with non-grasping. And then when we sit, and I won't say anything other than this, the sitting has now started, but then when we practice meditation, meaning sitting with ourselves in silence, uh, consider, as a, as a practice prompt today, consider relaxing and being receptive as we talk about it, but just noticing when and where your mind feels hooked. So whenever you find yourself in your mind hooked by something, ask you, the question could be, what does it mean to, to, re, to be with this without grasping? What is this moment without grasping? And that means grasping to keep it, grasping to get rid of it, grasping to have something else. But just to, to take the simplicity of a question like that, what is this moment without grasping? And not to repeat the question ad nauseum, but just to, to drop it in as a sincere reminder of both the Buddhist teachings, but also uh, your sincerity of, of exploring the possibility of these teachings. So what is, what is this moment without grasping? And you might feel your hands again for a moment, but then just really stay open and receptive to what emerges. So you don't have to, you're not trying to control your attention. I want to be very clear. You're not trying to control your attention. You're not trying to shape or dictate what your attention is aware of. What you're practicing is the intention of non-grasping. Let me just do that again and again but it doesn't matter what your attention becomes attentive to. What we're establishing is the intention of how we're trying to explore a relationship to what's occurring. Is there a me and my I in the middle of experience 
at war with things in, in a debate or argument? Or is their consciousness receiving and releasing moment-to-moment -moment experience? Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. And if you, once again, if you would like support in your practice, if you would like uh, to attend live online classes with me and Terry in meditation, Qigong, and yin yoga, if you would like to have a whole library of archive classes and tutorials and uh, essential workshops, as well as a copy of my new ebook, The What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga, um, and a bunch of other goodies for you. If you'd like any of that, uh, please do consider either subscribing to our newsletter, Practicing Yin, or joining our practice Sangha, which is where you really um, support our work um, through your monetary uh, membership in the song. So we really appreciate your support. We look forward to practicing with you. And until the next episode, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All our best. <laughs>